Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about Charlemagne chapter 4. Now, I've issued chapter 5, episode 5. I can't find chapter 4, so I'm going to read chapter 4. I believe that I read it before. So I'm reading a bit ahead. This is a classic uh, book summarizing. They've got a focus, it's written by a priest of the 50s. I focus on the, you know, you have to understand this period to understand how the church went to England and all that type of stuff. So we're going to read chapter 4, The Conquest of Clovis. So Clovis is a warlord who came up and uh, he started sort of emerging the chief of the Franks and the Franks invaded everybody. So let's go closer. Clovis, we have said, was only 14 years of age when his father's death uh, devolved upon him. 14, imagine. The chiefmanship of one of the small principalities into which the Franks were divided, uh, which could furnish a band of about 4,000 warriors. So, um, you can imagine, it's a bit like Taylor Swift, uh, it's still got the tastes of um, the ideas and energy for when she was a pop star. It's, a, it's amazing how uh, when you thrust the frame, a lot, of, a lot of your development doesn't mellow and stuff like that. So I think he kept on going. But the young king was of the daring, enterprising, unscrupulous and un- character of which in troubled times successful adventures are made and with Small, these small means, his audacity and favouring circumstances won him within a few years the conquest of the whole of Gaul. So, in a sense, you're too young and too inexperienced to be phased by things. And um, it's a big sense. I think Alexander the Great, when you look at it, he just just had no sense. He had a sort of a single-minded purpose. He wanted to get uh, Darius. Just he just broke ranks and just chased the general off. He had a sort of a real focus across here. Uh, the Franks had long been allies of the empire and formed the defence along the frontiers uh, for it along the frontiers of the Lower Rhine. But no doubt the example of the other barbarian adventurers who were winning possessions in other parts of the empire fired up the minds of the ambitious, enterprising young Frank. So the empire is going far out. Do you hear? It's just been slaughtered by these barbarians. Probably the barbarian races behind the Franks shared the general unquiet amongst the barbarians and pushed them uh, towards the empire. Clovis took a great resolution, assembled his warriors and marched them across the forest to Susson and attacked the prefect uh, uh, Syragus and inflicted upon him a total defeat. So, you can imagine he would have... We can count on the Franks... Uh, as allies, and so double double agents. Syracuse fled to refuge his ally, the Gothic king Thulus, who was given up by his ally on the demand of Clovis and put to death. So, what the heck? What the heck? You go in for a job and you get put to death. No one, uh, no one took upon himself to maintain the interests of a distant emperor. No one attempted to rally the forces of the province against the Frankish conqueror. Thus, at the cost of one battle, the young Frank adventurer 
the chief of a few thousand semi-barbarians living the rude life of farmers and hunters in the scattered hamlets found himself successor of the imperial authority of the populous and wealthy cities the fertile lands uh, started with luxurious villas wealthy civilized population the whole of northern gaul so it's one of those things that you can imagine these random things happening all the time it's almost a random thing. exercised his power with politics Politic moderation respected the municipal institutions of the cities, which made them almost self-governing. Uh, left unmolested the properties and liberties of the people generally, and continued the administration of imperial law um, through the existing hierarchy of officials. The lands of the imperial treasury and the unreclaimed lands afforded ample means of rewarding his warriors, who, grouped here and there on their new estates, formed a sufficient garrison uh, where where no one thought of resistance. So there he comes across. Of the Teutonic races who figure prominently in the overthrow of the Western Empire in the 5th century, Goth, Vandal, Burgundian, Suave, Frank, Lombard and Saxon, all had become Christians in the course of the previous century. The important thing is that they become Aryan Christians who didn't believe in the mystery of the Trinity. The Goths, as we know, had been converted uh, by the ladies of Upalas. Um, how the gospel spread to the other races, we do not know. No record whatsoever, not even legend remains of the subject except that of the Burgundians. Socrates, the classical, ecclesiastical historian, tells us that this race had already occupied the left bank of the Rhine and had acquired peaceful habits and employed themselves in some kind of manufacture. When the terrible invasion of the Hun, Attila broke upon their quiet so, um, industry. Despairing of the aid of man, they looked around for a protecting deity. The god of the Romans appeared the mightiest, as worshipped by the most powerful people. They sought the aid of the bishop of some of the neighbouring cities of Gaul, and after some previous preparation, received the rite of baptism. A victory over the enemy confirmed to them their new faith. So, so you imagine that you know they, they keep on trying a new god each time, and uh, and if they won, that's it sort of meant that that god went further forward. Subsequently, probably through the influence of their Teutonic kindred, they adopted the Aryan creed. So the Aryan is the non, is a, a non. Um, um, it's not aligned to the church, I suppose. It's more Eastern Orthodox. Um, at, the uh, at the period at which we have now arrived, Gonobord, one of the Burgundian kings, had slain his brother Chilpric with his wife and condemned the two daughters to exile. The envoys of Clovis had praised the beauty of the good sense of Claudita, the younger of the princesses. So the, and so... Um, so it's it's interesting. So so Claudita. Um Clovis demanded her marriage. Goldman did not dare risk the enmity of any refusal. So yeah it's a pretty amazing thing. In some unexplained way, Claudita had been brought up in the Orthodox creed, which Goldman and the large number of beginnings a little later also embraced under the influence of Avitus, the distinguished bishop of Vienne. 
The Christian wife naturally tried to convert her heathen husband, but without success. He gave every tolerance to the religion of the newly conquered Gallo-Roman subjects. He paid every respect to the powerful bishops of the cities and the new dominions. In his own house, he allowed the queen to follow her religion, and when a child was born to them, allowed its mother to have it baptised. The death of the child within a few days, while still, according to custom, wearing the white baptismal rose, was calculated to leave a sinister impression. But when a second child was born, he allowed it also to be baptised. This also began to sicken, but the pious Claudita prayed earnestly for the life might be spared for the promotion of God's glory amongst the heathen. She naturally regarded its discovery and represented it to her husband as an answer to her prayers. We may be sure that the relationship between Clovis and his Christian conquests had its influence uh, on his religious view. Christianity was universally regarded as a religion of civilization, heathen as the religion of barbarism. There is no reason to think the Franks were more opposed to Christianity than the other barbarians who had already embraced Christianity. Only Christian teachers had not reached them and their Saxon neighbours. Once brought into the close relations with Gallo-Romans, the conversion of the Franks was sure sooner or later to follow. The influences of civilization and Christianity were already acting forcibly upon the able mind of the young Frank princess, prince, and these influences and domestic and political were gradually preparing the bind of Clovis for the conversion, which a special crisis soon precipitated. The barbarian tribes beyond the Rhine and the Danube were still in motion and those who had already seized upon the possession of the empire had to defend it against all comers. It was probably some of such movements which shortly brought uh, the Franks into hostilities with the kindred Alamandi. So there's, you can imagine pushing everyone, you know, can either fight a fierce person or fight the less, you know, the, the softer people to the, to the left of them. The hostile forces met in the Battle of Tolebiak, Zurpach near Cologne. The small army of the Franks was hard pressed by the Alamandi. Clovis, like Constantine, on the eve of his engagement with Maximus Maxentils, uh, looked about him for a supernatural aid. He invoked the gods of the Christians and vowed that if he could give him the victory, he would believe in him, Hachim, and be baptized as his God. The tide of the battle turned, the king of the Alamini was slain, the Alamini in danger of total destruction, hailed Clovis as the king, 496, so that's how it did, you know, it's like chess. There was a remarkable difference between this and the second great conversion of the barbarians and the first great conversion of the empire. In the first conversion, individual souls were gathered in one by one, the work began amongst the lower classes of the people and gradually worked its way up towards the higher classes. The conversion of the emperor marks the triumph of Christianity over the cultured paganism of Greece and Rome. In the second conversion, the work usually began with the kings. The question of adoption of Christianity was considered as a political question, which affected the national life. The queen submitted to the question first to his counsellor, then it was proposed to the tribesmen, and usually the baptism of the king was accompanied by that of a large number of people. So, the king, the Teutons were democratically elected and there was a sort of consultation process. These features of barbarian conversion as illustrated in the case of the Franks. So you can almost see a better form of non-slave democracy.
I think I think um, the Romans needed so many slaves in the asylum. Claudita summoned Regimus, the saintly bishop of Reims, to instruct the royal convert and prepare him for baptism. We are told that when he, the young hero, heard the bishop's lips, the history of Christ's passion and death, he gave a curious evidence of his sympathy with the divine suffering and a failure to understand the spiritual significance of the awful transaction by explaining, If I had been there with my Franks, I would have taught the Jews a lesson. The king's baptism took place at the following Christmas. It was performed with all the solemnity and pomp which the great and wealthy church of Reims could display on an important occasion. And the ceremony was elaborately described in the rhetorical pages of Gregory Tours and others. Now, rhetoric is argument, the, the skill of speech, isn't it? Uh, the church, not rather than rhetorical question, rhetorical is sort of stylized question. So we rather focus on question rather than rhetoric, I suppose. The church was hung with embroidered tapestries of white curtains. It blazed with countless lights, odours and incenses like the airs of paradise were diffused around. Regimus addressed his royal churchman, quote, Gently bar thy head, Sicabarian, uh, henceforth worship that which thou hast burnt, and burn that which thou hast, hast worshipped. Oh dear, that's sort of cultural genocide. The king's example was followed by his people. 5,000 warriors are said to have been baptised at this time. Warriors, can you imagine? Christianity was adopted as a national religion, uh, though for a century after, there is evidence that the old religion was still lingered amongst the Franks. The importance of the conversion of Clovis was increased by the fact that, that by the time he was the only orthodox as offering the Christian, the other barbarian kings were Arians, and Anastasius, the Eastern Emperor, favoured uh, the monophysicists. So, um, monophysicists is, is a Arian thing. I, I don't quite understand that. It did much to reconcile the Latin subjects with the sovereignty and attracted the sympathies of the Latin inhabitants of the other provinces of Gaul, Burgundy and Aquitaine. Clovis uh, was quite ambitious enough to desire to unite the whole of Gaul under his rule and political enough to take full advantage of this religious feeling in favour. So there was a bit of a schism between Eastern and Western Church and the um, barbarians were controlled back to central, central Rome except for the Franks. He began hostilities against the Burgundians, secured a secret good wishes of the cities of Latin population generally by a profession of his religious sympathies. The Latin inhabitants of the Burgundian provinces, after vain suggesting their rulers adopt the Orthodox creed, would strengthen their position, hardly disguise their sympathies for the Orthodox Franks. And several bishops and influential Gallo-Romans were exiled in consequence. The result of a series of engagements that the Burgundians were compelled to acknowledge the Franks as their uh, Suzerian, whatever that is, Susie Rain. I have to remember that. To pay him a tribute, the peers uh, in peace and sent their warriors to follow his banner in the war. The Visigoths gave him pretext um, for undertaking a war to deliver the people of Aquitaine from religious persecution. Aquitaine sounds such a beautiful place. You can imagine, imagine France. Europe, the Gothic king, 
was a zealous Arian who harassed and persecuted the Latin population, exiled their bishops, imprisoned their priests, and blocked up their doors, the churches with thorns. Clovis came in the character of a champion of the Catholic religion. A single battle of Pontiers in 508 broke the Visigothic power of Gaul, and the wealthy and refined Latin population of this flourishing province gladly exchanged the sovereignty of the Arian Eric for the Orthodox Clovis and the Gothic garrisons as guests for their ruder race, who uh, at least were co-religionists. Well, so the Visigoths were better than them. So you have to understand this Aryan stuff is... You know, people just don't understand this religion, religious uh, stuff. So Aryan is that Jesus was a second god. Sort of log it seems a bit more logical easier to pick up. The last great measure which consolidated the power of Clovis was the union of all the subdivisions of the Frank nations under his own kingship. Historians accuse him of not shrinking from the crime of pursuit of the subject and his ambition. They say he suggested the son of Sigbert, king of the Ripurlian Franks, the assassination of his father, with a promise that he would favour his succession and then cause the patricides to be slain and obtain his own election. There you go. Don't trust a, a dickhead. They arise, uh, accuse him of getting rid of his, his near relations and chiefs who ruled over the subdivisions of the Slalian Franks at Tilluin and Cambrai, and thus removing obstacles to the consolidation of his French power. Lastly, the Americans, Amoracians, nominally recognised the sovereignty of Clovis, but, safe in the depths of their forests, they had little intercourse with the rest of the world and were practically independent. So you get a, a real feeling of Middle Earths and the Elves. Let us briefly glance at the condition of the Frankish Empire at the end of the conquest of Clovis. To begin with, the original seats of the nation, all the bank of the Rhine, from the mountains to Switzerland, the shores of the Germanic, German Ocean, in a belt of variable breadth, bounded on the east by the Saxon and Friskans, Friskans of the sort of Dutch people, who inhabited uh, entirely by the Franks. On the left of the Rhine, from the Moselle down to the ocean, the Franks inhabited the country uh, from their fathers had won the century before. Passing from the Rhine to the Somme, a mixture of population begins to appear, and the further westward, the greater intermixture of Latins and the Franks. But still, the Franks are the proprietors of countries and are settled on the land in entire tribes and agricultural communities. The Gallo Roman population is chiefly in the condition of labourers and artisans amongst the Frankish conquerors. The Somme is the boundary between the lines between which the Franks dwell and that in which they are only masters. Beyond the Somme, the passing westward to the Seine, the Latin population predominates. Cities are entirely Roman. The Franks are settled uh, only here and there in military colonies, safeguarding the sovereignty of the King Clovis. As we pass to Aquitaine, the population is still more entirely Roman in character. The general prosperity in the beautiful country was little interrupted by either Goth or Frank, and retained its ancient Roman civilization altered by the progress of gradual decadence. We shall find the sequel that will, uh, these natural differences in the character and populations make themselves felt in political history. The civilization of the Roman Gallic land affected a moral conquest of the Franks who garrisoned and governed it, and they ended up adopting its interests. So the Franks invaded, but then the ideas invaded the Franks, didn't it? The feeling of antagonism between the Roman uh, Romano-Gallic people and the Franks 
at people uh, continued for ages after the unions and the song was in fact the boundary between the two nations Australia and uh, Austrasia and Neustrasia. Um, okay one important so there's actually two kingdoms uh, the, the Frankish one and the the Frankish conquest. One important feature of the political condition is the mixed population of all these districts in which the Franks were only military settlers is the original Latin inhabitants and the barbarians settled amongst them continued the two distinct peoples governed by its own laws. The Franks were ruled by the king of their own election according to their national uh, laws and customs. The Latins were ruled by the old imperial law administered by magistrates probably the most cases their own race appointed by the king. The relations of the Latin race with their barbarian masters was fairly equitable and not unkindly. The oppression, uh, what oppression there was, was chiefly due to the weakness of the Gallo-Romans who used their office under the Franks in tyrannising over their own countrymen. And, in not a few cases, the small landed proprietors voluntarily abandoned their conditions as Romans and placed themselves under the protection of the powerful Frank neighbours and became his men, and thereby escaped the tyranny of their own magistrates and the exactions of the Roman fiscal systems. The interesting thing is that Roman had a tax system. The Franks had conquest. They needed something. They just had to, if they needed the money, they didn't have a treasury. They just had a pile of treasure. The barbarian kings, indeed, soon saw the wisdom of embodying their national customs in written codes and drawing up these codes probably with the assistance of their Roman advisers as well as of the chiefs and elders. They introduced more or less a modification and improvement of their new condition uh, and their growing civilization. The Salic Law, the Code of the Franks, opens with a stately preface in which they speak of themselves as, quote, The nation of the Franks, illustrious and having God as its founder, brave in arms, constant in works of peace, profound in counsel, faithful to treaties, noble uh, and healthy in body, of singular uh, fairness and beauty, hardy, active, bold in combat, lately converted to the Catholic faith, free from heresy, uh, while yet in barbarous belief, seeking by the inspiration of God, they clearly acknowledge loving justice and mindful uh, of piety. Pity. Selic law was dedicated by the chiefs of the nation who at the time held command amongst them. Glory to Christ, who loves the Franks, may he have the guard for the kingdom. Across. This is the nation which, uh, smaller numbers, but brave and strong, broke off the neck of the hard yoke of the Romans. The condition uh, of the cities forms another very important feature in the political and social condition of the country. Each great fortified city with the tracts of country around it depended upon it had municipal conditions modelled on the Republican constitution of ancient Rome. It governed itself in its internal affairs. It paid a tribute to the imperial and royal treasury in one fixed sum, raising the sum amongst the citizens and discretion of its own officers. Its walls and towers were manned by its own militia, not by imperial royal troops, and, on the other hand, its citizens were not liable to serve in the royal armies. So there were European city-states, and you still have this in Europe. The great landowners and neighbourhoods usually had, so you get this feeling of the Italian things, townhouses and, uh, uh, ha and uh, were their chief mansions, 
they were citizens and often held municipal offices. Each city had its, uh, was, was then a little republic. There was little feeling of community or interest amongst them. On the contrary, there were frequent jealousies between one city and another, which provoked quarrels and sometimes broke out into actual hostilities. This condition of the cities will help explain the weakness of the empire against the barbarians. Each of these little republics stood on its own in defence and contributed nothing to the general security. It will account for the readiness at which the prophets of Sarangus submitted to Clovis when the prefect had been defeated in Susan. We must bear in mind the cities retained their constitutions under the Franks and continued to be great extent Latin republics in the midst of the Frankish Empire. The last instance that we shall mention in the history of Clovis is the legalisation of his position in Gaul by the imperial recognition. When Osada made Augustus uh, resign the purple, he also made the Senate report to the court of Constantinople, and thus it was unnecessary to maintain an emperor in the West, uh, that, he, that they placed themselves under the authority of the emperor in the East and requested him to nominate Augusta as the representative in Italy. The Byzantine court, uh, with a refined and far-seeing policy, thereupon assumed nominal sovereignty over the whole of the empire, and proceeded to legalise the position of the barbarian kings who had gained settlements within it, and to harmonise their actual power within the imperial theory by conferring upon them titles which made them nominally the representatives of the imperial authority. The kings were profoundly awed by the idea of imperial authority, which in fact uh, they had so rudely violated, were glad to bear the titles of consul and patrician, which centuries had made uh, illustrious. They probably found also the conciliate their subjects to be able to regard themselves as once more citizens of an empire ruled by legitimate authority rather than subjects by the right of conquest of the barbarian. Thus, in the year, last year of the reign of Clovis in 510 AD, accepted from the Emperor Anastasius the title of Consul and Patrician and rode into the Cathedral of Tours clad in Roman tunic and purple mantle, scattered on the purple royal donative amongst the people, who in their adulations held him at the title of Consul and Augustus. He died in the course of the year, which witnessed the climax of his dignity and was buried in Paris in the Church of the Apostles, afterwards St. Genevieve, which Claudita has built. So that would be lovely to see. And that's the end of the chapter. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see how that one goes. another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. May you discover truly amazing things, understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.